good to be back. For those of you who prayed for us while we were gone for a couple of weeks, thank you. We had outside this morning a couple of people that felt like kind of a second honeymoon for Randall and I. We were in the Pacific Northwest and staying with a couple of friends for part of our time. And uh, yeah, it was just a great time, honestly, of us every day kind of taking time for recreation, going for hikes, going for walks. We hung out of Price Lava at 100 Falls. Eagles Mama, that was pretty cool, right? We were literally every day trying to track down Morgan and other whales because they were in our area, right? We'd take time to just hang out, we would rest, and then we'd take time every morning for several hours and just pray, be with Jesus, and stay. So this is an incredible time for us uh, just to get away. So over the coming weeks and months, I'll probably be unpacking just some of the things that God was speaking in that time for us uh, about vision for vintage and vision for future stuff. So it was a great time. Thanks for praying. I will say you can keep on praying. Uh, tomorrow at noon, I have a shoulder surgery. I have a torn labrum, and so I'm going in. It's only 16 weeks of recovery, no big deal. And uh, so you can just be praying for that, praying for Randall, really. I'm sure I'll be a baby the entire time because I am a man, and so it'll be great, right? Anybody have a husband who's like, like it's like man sickness, and they're like, oh, they're in the bed, right? Yeah. Hey, I do want to share with you kind of more serious, just um, one of the prayers that God gave me while I was gone. I was reading uh, from Acts chapter 2 for several days while I was gone, and I I read a prayer, uh, I read this this, this psalm that that Paul, um, excuse me, that Peter uh, is speaking uh, in Acts chapter 2, and and as I read it, I began to personalize it, and I'm simply just sharing this with you. Maybe if there's something you want to pray into prayer, maybe you begin to pray for your life. Uh, and I just want to give it to you this morning. And I so this is Acts chapter 2. You can write this down, save it on your phone, whatever it may be. It's not on the screen, I'm just reading it here. Acts chapter 2, verses uh, 25. It's verse 25. It says, For David says concerning him, and this was the prayer I began to pray, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. I don't know about you, but I love that. My, my flesh shall dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. I found myself just praying that, personalizing that prayer just again and again and again. I invite you to do the same in your upcoming weeks. Hey, so in the last, uh, we are week four into our uh, fall small group campaign, our fall study uh, in Paul's letter to Titus. I spoke the first week. Uh, Mark uh, Nicewander spoke uh, on the first part of chapter one of Titus two weeks ago. Last week, Mike Farley, who was up here doing announcements so eloquently, uh, spoke on the second part of Acts chapter one last week, and I'll be diving into chapter two this this, this week. And Last week, Mike spoke about Titus's call to attack false teaching while also loving and leading false teachers back to faith. And I love that part of Paul, that he wanted Titus to recognize, hey, the, what's going on, the false gospel and the false message, it's really, really important that you counter that, right? It's really, really important you push back against that, but I want you to recognize we don't want to separate from people we have differing opinions on, right? Our goal is to bring them back into the fold and back into relationship. And so the challenge for Titus from Paul was, hey, I want you to correct, I want you to challenge those with false teaching, but I want you to invite them back into the fold. It's important to get doctrine and theology right. It's important we get the gospel message correct, but we want to make sure that we're maintaining relationship with these guys because we do love them. And then this week, we want to dive into more, with greater intentionality, the idea then of how we are supposed to act, right? It's important to have right doctrine, Paul, me, Paul is making that clear. Right doctrine is important. What you say and what you think is important. But the key here with that is also then what you do. So what you say and what you do. Because actions of an individual, they're loud, aren't they? The actions of individuals, of every person, actions are loud. 
And if honest, most of the time they overshadow whatever a person may say. And as we said last, uh, the first week, Paul cares wholeheartedly about people who don't know Jesus coming to Jesus. And this happens as the church proclaims the gospel with right words and with right action. So while we were gone this past week, Randall forwarded me a, 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 a um, article from the media outlet Baptist New Global about a prominent nationally recognized pastor from George in the Baptist Church who had a moral failing and is now being accused of, of sexual abuse. And it was one of those moments as I read it, I was like, oh my gosh, this is the last person I would think of. I, I'm shocked. I know his family. I've been around his teaching for all of my Christian life. I remember him when I was a kid and going to church there and hanging out, right? And I'm sitting here looking at this going, oh my gosh, one more scandal. This is overwhelming to me, right? Because the nature of every scandal is it does, it impacts everyone who's involved with it, right? It impacts every single person who knows the person and knows the voice, right? I don't cast stones because I was literally broken for everyone involved in this and I don't cast stones, but I was and I want us to be acutely aware, right? That this man's actions affected everyone who knows him, who's a part of his life, and it affects everyone who knows who he is, both believer but most importantly for Paul would be the unbeliever. Our actions impact people. For most in this story, his actions here would be speaking more loudly than the last 55 years of sermons that he's preached in his life. Y'all understand that. Unfortunately, you're not unaware of that. You've seen that. You've, you've, you've seen stories. Maybe you've personally experienced the weight of these moments like this. And Paul is coming into this one saying, listen, that's great that you have your doctrine right, but let's talk about the actions that go along with that. With this mind this morning, I have a question for each of you, kind of as a, a launching pad of, of kind of how Paul's thinking and what he's thinking and the heartbeat that he has for Cretan non-Christians, right? His heart beats for them. And I want you to think about the people Paul's talking about in the same way that you think about the primary person in your life that you're closest with who you pray for every day who does not know Jesus, do, do you have someone who's close to you, a loved one, maybe a family member who is an unbeliever, someone who's a not yet Christian? Maybe you have someone in your life who, who they, they grew up a Christian, but maybe they quote unquote backslid, we like to say in the church, but they, they pulled back from God, they turned their back on God, there's no part of their life that's producing fruit, and they're kind of saying, yeah, I'm not even sure what I believe, I'm not sure I'm really a Christian, I'm not really sure I be believe in Jesus, and what do you feel with that? You feel weight, don't you? You feel the tension of that. You, you feel this longing and this urgency in that person's life, right, to see them come to know Jesus. When you pray for them, you pray differently for them than you do other people who are Christians. You feel a different weight and a different pressure, right, a different experience in the moment. And that's what Paul feels for the entire island. He loves them. He's for them. He wants them to come to Jesus. In these moments with the people who were part of your life, here's a question. There's a couple of questions for you. Do you have Christian people in your life that you hope that those people you're praying for never meet? Right? Because of the way that they act. Maybe they're pharisaical, like, oh, please don't let them be with them. Maybe they're just weird Christians, and it'll actually kind of slander the name of Jesus because they're just so odd. Or maybe they don't have words and actions that match up because they're just angry all the time. Or maybe they're just condescending all the time, right? Do you hear stories and do you have, do you have hear moral stories of moral failings in the church that you hope this person never hears about? Do you get nervous with every scandal? Do you get nervous with every hypocrite who speaks on TV or in the news, quote unquote, in Jesus' name? Another question, what type of person do you hope they meet and spend time with? 
in your mind, how would you describe that person? What traits would define that person's life? Listen, when I pray for the people who were part of my life, I give a very clear description to Jesus of the type of person that I want this person to meet. Right? Jesus, I just pray for this. I pray for my friend. I pray, God, they would meet a very loving, non-judgmental, funny person who just loves them. It wants to be a part of their life, who celebrates them, who's completely open to listening rather than having to correct and set straight, God. They'd be willing to listen and hear you, God. I pray you'd put someone in that part of my friend's life who loves Jesus to the core of their being and then would love this person to their core of them. That's what I'm praying for. I'm praying and describing for Jesus in case you can't figure it out. What I'm looking for, for my friend, to have in relationship so they can know Jesus and see Jesus because of words and actions together. We all get it, don't we? Okay. That's Paul. Titus 2 is this. Paul is about to give us a description of what he's looking for for the believers in Crete as it relates to how they're going to relate to non-believers, the not yet Christians on the island. Let's pick it up here in Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. He's talked, remember Paul's writing to Titus. You, Titus, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, Temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, sound in faith and in love and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the work of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. Titus and everything, set them an example by you doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Christians, followers of Jesus, teach slaves to be subject to their masters and everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. To start, remember that Paul is talking to Titus, and then Titus is leading and teaching the church in Crete. In verse 1, we see he is responsible for teaching what is appropriate to sound doctrine. It's the next slide. What is appropriate to sound doctrine? Or another way of saying it is those things which are Fitting to sound doctrine. So it's clear to recognize here in verse 1 and the, pre, the, the ongoing verses, Titus is not teaching them here doctrine. That's not the goal. Instead, he is to teach them right actions that fit with or that go with sound doctrine. Actions that are suitable, fitting, proper, and to be visible along with right doctrine. So, so Titus has spent time talking about right thinking, right? What does it mean to be a Christian? Titus, Paul spent some time when he came in with the church, taught right doctrine. They have right doctrine. But he's coming and saying, now you, get a, you have to teach what's fitting to go along with right doctrine. As one person said, Titus is to pass along what could be called Christian character in action. That's verse 1. He's coming to Titus and saying, all right, everyone listen, it is important that you know what you believe, why you believe it, and there's a level of accuracy in it. Your understanding of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, who he is, his life, his death, and his resurrection. It's important that you understand and have a clear grasp of scripture and what it means to be a follower of Jesus. All of these things are important, so teaching and and feeding the mind on these things is vitally important. But you also have to now be taught actions that are fitting to go with your sound doctrine because right words must be married to right action. And why? 
Now, this is common sense, but in Paul, Paul is dedicating his, just dedicated to giving his life to the not yet Christian. Like, that's really important for you to recognize. When Paul's teaching, his heartbeat is that he is all about the not yet Christian. Yes, he loves the church, and you can read through different places where he talks about his passion and his heartbeat and how much he, he loves them, he's for them, his spiritual family. But as it relates to his energy, he's giving his life away to the not yet Christian. This is important because he expects the same of the church that he planted in Crete, which Titus is now leading. His expectation is just as I am living my life for the not yet Christian, I am desiring and expecting the same for you and the things that you think about and the way that you live. In this teaching, you will see one primary theme. Each person is to die to self, to give their lives away for others, and to live lives where their actions promote the message of Jesus. If there's one takeaway for us is that we are each to be people who die to self every day, who are faithfully giving our lives away to others, and who live lives where our actions promote the message of Jesus everywhere that we go. Paul was asking them to use their freedoms not to enhance self, but to freely choose to die to self so that those who don't know Jesus can find him through the church's message and their actions of integrity and high character. All of you have heard of St. Francis of Assisi. Years ago, he went to a disciple and said, hey, let's go down to the town and let's go preach the gospel. And so they got up, they went down to the town and started going door to door to door to door, hanging out with people, checking in to see how they're doing, loving on them. The kids were in the streets, started playing games with them. People had offered them food. They would sit down and eat with them. They would offer them drink. They would sit and drink with them as prayer needs arose. They would pray for them. And they're just going around. So they went around to every store, every house. And about three or four or five hours later, they began walking back to the monastery. And the disciple goes, when are we going to start preaching the gospel? And he goes, we just preached the gospel with every action and every word that we manifested. We can go home. Now, let me say this for those of you. The gospel proclamation must be in word, but it also must be in deed. It has to be a marriage of the both. And that's what Paul's getting at. Those who don't know Jesus must be something that you're thinking about and giving your life to every day in the church in Crete. It's why you've been sent here. It's why you're established here for the not yet Christian. And so what you say and what you do matters. So Paul breaks down for Titus a specific message for specific groups of people in the church. We're going to look at all of these way too quickly just because we don't have time to go into them very richly and very deeply. But he's going to look at older men, older women, younger men, younger women, Titus himself, and then slaves, right? Again, what's the breakdown of ages? I don't know. You just, you just decide for yourself which one you are, and that'll be helpful, and you can learn about all the others, okay? He starts with older men. Now, in Greco-Roman culture, the older men, verse 2, represented the head of the household, the ones with the greatest power and greatest influence in their culture. Again, very patriarchal, very, very much male-dominated, right? And with that influence came great responsibility. Listen, with influence comes great responsibility. But many times with power, you know what happens. With power comes abuse. With power comes a bloated self-worth and understanding of self-value. And with Power comes pride. Every trait that Paul names, every trait that Paul names, it combat it combats the power, the power and abuse of power, and leads men, leads men, these older men, to specific traits. The traits I'm just going to read them is to be temperate, to be worthy of respect. You can just read it in this in verse two of, of, of Titus two. To be temperate, to be worthy of respect in how they live, to be self-controlled with all of their actions, and sound or strong in faith in God, faith, sound and strong in love of one another. We're going to look at that in a second. And then sound and strong in endurance and perseverance, continuing to press through, right? And in all of these, all of these, He's saying these are actions that are to mark men of power and of influence. Each of these traits, and this is important, 
they speak to selflessness and being others-focused. Let's just look briefly at the phrase, sound in love. Again, if you know, there are many different words in Greek for love, and Paul intentionally uses the word agape here. Agape speaks to a type of love that you and I, that no human being, is able to express in their own power. It requires the power of Jesus because it is this nature of love that is self-sacrificing, giving our lives away, not focused on self, but focused on others. Agape is the word used to express Jesus coming and dying on the cross and sacrificing himself for us. And the expectation, men, listen, men, is for every single one of them, and I would say every single one of you, it's to take the power and the influence you have and to die to self in it so that you can then love others, sacrifice yourself so that others could live, they could thrive, and they can succeed in life. You don't Live life focused on your power and gaining more influence, but using your power, using your influence, so that those who are struggling can live and those who don't know Jesus will come to him. Several years ago, and, and I'm going to tell this whole story, but I don't want to name people, but I had a moment, I had a moment at a large conference where there was a guy on stage who I had an opportunity uh, early on in my life to invest into and disciple and he's on stage, and there's a lot of people out here, and just looking around, and I'm just like blown away. I'm so proud of him. I'm proud of who he'd become. I was proud of the man that he was. We just had a conversation before he went on stage, and I was like, man, it was just super cool, and watching and just proclaim the gospel with authority and with power. And I'm sitting there in worship thinking about this whole moment, and as clear as I'm talking to you, God says to me, and I don't say this very lightly at all, this was a, one of those defining spiritual moments for me. God said to me, Steve, if I never put you on a stage like this, but use you to put people on that stage, will you be satisfied? And y'all, in my old man flesh, influence, and power, I'm like, oh. Because it exposed me that I, I wanted to be there. I wanted to be the guy, right? I wanted, I wanted to win because that felt like winning. I'm a winner. I'm competitive. I'm just as good as he is. I discipled the poor guy, right? I can be on that. You know, I'm getting, that was my flesh. I sat there for a whole song just wrestling with my flesh and my pride and, the, and my need to choose, like knowing the right answer, right? I knew what the right answer was, but I was wrestling. And I finally got to a point at the very end of the very first song, I just said, I mean, with like tears in my eyes, said, God, yes, I'm willing to be used to put people on that stage and never get there myself. Thank you for the opportunity. And I just wept. Weep strong. I don't weep much. I cried. Tears came out of my eyes, which is like worthy of weeping for me, right? But that was it. It was my power and my influence. Do I use it for my own sake or not? Do I use it to raise others up? And he's looking at the older men saying, hey, in your family and in the community and in church, your influence and your power is not for you. It's for everybody else around you. That's how the gospel is proclaimed in action. Number two is older women. Verse three, it's important to note that in the early church and in society in general, older women uh, were most honored and, and most respected. They represented the primary caretaker in the family. They were most responsible for investing into and shaping young women and honestly shaping young men, children, right? Here, Paul is tasking them with investing into, listen, investing into is a primary call for the gospel of Jesus in the church. A primary call was to disciple the young next generation, was to give themselves away to somebody, a named entity and a named person. Yes, their children represented that, but it was more than that. It was other people outside of their, their family to give their life away. They were called to, to be holy they were lived to, to live holy, to live self-controlled lives, 
to teach and to train the next generation, specifically young women coming alongside. In fact, one, one theologian said their primary job probably was to take young married couples under their wings and teach them what it meant to be married and how to be married. That was one of their primary calls in life. And all Paul recognizes their importance. He recognizes their unique role in the church in raising up young people in their spiritual life. The church needed them, but here's the point. The community of Crete needed them to do this because in investing into the next generation and giving their lives away, it literally was an action that caused the gospel to come alive. Because I don't know if you know this, but I'm not going to say all. That's not a fair word. But the majority of people, I would give percentages, but it would be making it up, right? But the majority of people, Christian and non-Christian, would Give their right arm if somebody just cared about them and invested into them. Now, I'll just tell you this. If you took your unbelieving neighbor who is struggling because every young mom and every young woman struggles at some point, and you just said, I want to come alongside of you and just be your biggest fan and love you, is that okay? They would probably tear up or they would weep, right? And they would say, please. And you would then raise them up as investing into them with the gospel being the source of life for everything that you give them. And then in, you don't have to necessarily speak the gospel with them. You just do an action until all of a sudden the door opens. And then because of your actions, your actions can then match the words that you speak to them. Paul is challenging them. Call for us is the same. Paul is challenging them. Scripture is calling us to not get self-absorbed late in life, not to fade away into this lie. Listen, older women, let's just say anybody over 30, if that helps you, okay? Just to kind of help you all feel like you're together in this, okay? The enemy will lie to you and say you've become useless. That's the lie of the enemy. It's not Jesus. If you have the Holy Spirit, you are useful until you die and then even still in eternity. He tells them, hey, don't get stuck with too much drinking. Don't be slanderous and gossipy, right? Listen, I love my grandma, Seth. I really do. She's my mom's mom. But we'd go up there, and she'd talk to me for a second. And her favorite thing to do was to get my mom and get on the couch and start talking about every single human being and all the gossip that was going on in Dalton, Georgia. They would spend hours. Like I would go outside and walk through the woods. They have miles and miles of woods. I would go outside, and I would do things for hours. I'd throw the ball to myself. I would do all sorts of for hours, and I'd come in, and my mom's like, well, did you hear about Jennifer? No, I didn't, Mom. I don't live here anymore. Oh, let me tell you all about her. And spend hours, and I'm like, ah, right, what a useless act. Let me just tell you something, church. Everybody pay attention. There is nothing more useless for men, male or females, to spend time talking about things they heard about other people. Can I can make an invitation in the name of Jesus? Just stop. When you speak a word, ask yourself, am I building up or am I tearing down? And Paul is looking at them and saying, the gospel only builds up, ladies. It never tears down. He goes on with the younger woman in verses 4 and 5. Paul tells Titus to speak to young women about their role in the family, how it affects the spread of the gospel. Now, as we read about young women, it's important to remember the familial culture in which the church is placed on the island, this Greek island of Crete. In the ancient Greek world, this is important to recognize our culture and their culture are polar opposites, okay? You could think along the lines of these, like, 
very uh, fundamental Islamic cultures. This would be much more like the Greek culture we see here, right? In the ancient Greek culture in which Crete church is placed and Paul is speaking into, respectable women lived in a, compl- lived a completely secluded life. In the house, she had her own quarters and she seldom left them, not even to sit at meals with the men of the family. No man came to visit her except for her husband. She never attended any public assemblies. She never attended any public meetings, right? She seldom appeared on the streets, and when she did, she never did so alone. In fact, it has been said that there was no honorable way in which a Greek woman could make a living. No trade or profession was open to her, and if she tried to earn a living, living, she was driven to prostitution. Her life was not her own. What I want you to see is the culture of Crete was very different even than the culture in which the early church was birthed under Jesus in Jerusalem. Jesus had female disciples. Jesus traveled with females. The females actually financially supported the ministry of Jesus and the other disciples. We know Paul in other letters speaks to women who are elders and prophetesses in the church. I mean, they are literally leading and speaking in the church. But these things were not permitted in the culture of Crete, which was very strictly Greek. Women held no rights. They were to be silent. They did not play a viable role of any sort in the church in the eyes of culture. That's the important caveat. They were to be silent, not to have a viable role of any sort in the church in the eyes of culture. Long story short, it was hard to be a woman, especially a young woman. Her freedoms that had actually been given by, like they were expressed in the ministry of Jesus, even Paul himself, were not able to be expressed here. So a couple of things I want to look at. Number one, I do believe, it's on the screen, I do believe Paul was an advocate for women just like Jesus. But this is the part that's going to be hard, especially for us in America who love our freedoms. But the proclamation of the gospel and removing barriers to the gospel message, it trumped personal freedoms in his moment. That's hard, isn't it? You're like, I don't like that. As William Barclay puts it, it's on the screen also. If the women of the ancient church here in, in Crete had suddenly burst every limitation which the centuries had imposed upon them, The only result would have been to bring discredit on the church and cause people to say that Christianity corrupted womanhood. The chosen laying down of life here by these women seems narrow and and circumscribed, but it is a life Paul is calling them to live for the gospel. Long story short, I don't view Paul's limitations here or in First Timothy as a prescription for women for all time, but instead a cultural one for the success of the gospel of the day. You agree with me in that because you're sitting here today, right? Women are present. You're sitting next to women. You're glad that they're here, and we celebrate that. And what I believe Paul is saying is it's not that season yet in creep, but I would believe that he would say that season is coming, probably preferably to the gospel message as we continue to live honoring lives. I also believe we see Paul's heart for young women in these verses because young women were to be silent and invisible in culture that Paul names them and speaks to them for two verses is telling. He speaks to young men for one verse, young women for two verses, right? He is saying to them, hey, listen to me. Your actions are important for the message of the gospel. And naming traits for them to exercise, he is giving them value. And in my opinion, he's empowering them. They had a key role to play in the success of sharing the message of Jesus on the island of Crete. One of the phrases that we use in in missions today, it's a phrase called incarnational ministry. Everybody say that. Incarnational ministry. It's on the screen. That speaks as much as it speaks to becoming as much like those you are trying to reach without compromising your beliefs and your convictions. 
what Paul is calling these young women here to, and honestly every single one of them, is to incarnational ministry, to recognize the culture in which you were in and recognize you don't want to build any obstacles to ministry. So incarnate yourself. What does that look like? Every missionary in mission school is taught these things. The first thing you do when you go into a foreign country is to go learn the culture. Right? Go learn the culture. Go learn how to speak the language. Learn the actions that you naturally do every day that are offensive to the people that you're around. Stop doing those things, right? As long as it doesn't go against your convictions, doesn't go against, doesn't, isn't sin for you, and shift who you are so that there are no barriers between you and the gospel message. The first time I went to India, I go to Tammy, she says, listen, when you step into someone's house, you'd be super offensive if you don't take off your shoes. I'm like, okay. So I take off my shoes, we sit down, and I prop my feet up like this. She's like, no, 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 put Put your feet down. The soles of your feet being seen are offensive. That would totally take everybody, turn them off, and they would not be able to have conversation with you. So when I go to Indian homes, I put my feet on the ground, and I just plant them there, and I leave them there the entire time. Why? Because I don't want to do anything that's offensive to the people that's going to hinder our conversation and possibly hinder the proclamation of the gospel. And that's what Paul's talking about. In this, I don't believe Paul was trying to be repressive and say, no, I'm trying to keep you down. He's saying, no, the gospel's more important than your personal freedoms. The gospel's more important than what you want. Like, this is hard for us, right? Because we live in a world that says, your rights, when you want to do it, how you want to do it, no one can suppress those. Paul says, I've become all things to all people so as to win some. You're like, this is not sitting right. You're going to make this, clean this up, make it feel better, Steve? The language Paul is using here with younger women is difficult, especially in our culture. It may not seem fair, but fair isn't a kingdom principle. Bonhoeffer says when Jesus bids a man come or a human being come, he bids him to come and die. My belief is that in time as women in the church, like I don't know if you know this or not, but if you read through history, what what does the church do in every culture? An effective church changes every culture that it's in to produce life and freedom, to bring about the fullness of the kingdom, which is, in my opinion, to establish a level of equality and a value for women, which is what you see Jesus doing. But Paul recognizes, as an understanding of the culture that he's stepping into, we can't just change the culture overnight. We have to establish the church as a something the culture grabs hold of, and it doesn't say it, but I would believe, so as they come in, we can begin to treat, teach about the importance of young women and of old women, young women and old women. But we have to have a starting point. And ladies, I, I need you to die to self in this. You're going to be celebrated by us when you're celebrated in the family. And never forget, this is not equal at all. But the first time I experienced this type of moment of someone having to die to self in a cultural piece, I was in New York, as in upper New York, as in like fundamental Baptist world New York near Oswego. Right? Every, every summer for two, two summers in a row, I, I went for two weeks with this group, and we were doing youth ministry, speaking in churches. We went to this church, and there was a young guy there. He was in college. He was a little, little bit older than me. Uh, but he was doing ministry for the entire summer, and he was so excited that we were there because we were the first people he had seen his age the entire summer since he had been there. And he, pull, he started, we started talking about music, and he's like, oh, my gosh, I love Christian rap music, right? So he starts pulling out some of his Christian P.O.D. back in the day, if you remember those guys, pulling out some of these Christian rap tapes. And we're like, oh, my God, this is so great. And we're listening. The message is super powerful, right? It's got the, the – it's rap music, but it's, like, again, Christian. And, uh, but in this, like, very fundamental, very conservative area, for right or for wrong, they just believe rap music was of the devil in general. 
And so we start playing it, and the church elders start getting super offended. And he and they're like, they sit him down and talk to him. And he's like, what are you doing? Da, 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 da. And finally he just, he comes to me and says, what should I do? And I go, oh, my gosh, you need to fight for your rights here. This is Christian. This is Christian music. Don't they know any better? You need to stand up to them and tell them what the, how it is. And you need to stand strong. Man, you're not doing anything wrong. This is good, right? You need to stand up for yourself. And he goes, well, I'm pretty sure God's telling me that I need to humble myself, surrender these tapes. I'm going to go get a hammer. And he takes the hammer and in front of everybody, takes the tapes, and he crushes 15 tapes into a million different pieces. And I went, I'm not sure I could do that. I think I would be too set on my personal freedoms over the gospel. I'm not sure I'm willing to do that. He goes on, talks to younger men. He talks to them for like one sentence, primarily, probably, I don't really know. No one knows, but I'm guessing here, maybe because Titus has spent most of his time with younger men. He'd spent most of his time talking about doctrine and talking about actions. So Paul just says pretty straightforward here, be self-controlled, not given by, but not given by passions of wealth, by fame, by sex, power, or success, right? Come in the moment and be self-controlled. This is important. How you live your life and your actions, young men, is incredibly important. Again, we all know this nature of self-control. This is where young men struggle, right? We all feel this pull towards wealth, towards fame. I just talked about a second ago, being on stage, towards sex, towards power and success. And Paul very directly is coming and saying it's super important you don't do that. He then comes and talks to Titus, the teacher, right, the one who should be the model in, verse, in chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. It says this, In all things Titus, in all things Titus, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Paul reminds the teacher You don't get the right to just speak, but you also have to live it out. And the words here are powerful because he says his actions, Titus's actions, are the thing that brings credibility for him and the church as a whole. That's the language, right? Sound in speech and beyond reproach that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. You, Titus have a greater responsibility, right? He's not more important than, but because of his influence, right, his bad actions will impact more people, a.k.a. national scandals, impact more people, even though every pastor is equal in the eyes of God. Super sobering. If you are a primary leader, if you have influence over people, this message is for you. It's not just for Titus. He comes on then in talking to slaves in chapter 2, 9, and 10. Super important to recognize that one out of two, one out of three people in all of the Roman world here on, in, in Crete would have been slaves. So the church has slaves, possibly a third to a half of the church, I'm just making a guess, could be made up of slaves. And so when Paul is speaking to them, it's not just some random message. It's to people who Titus is pastoring and leading in the church, right? Now, when reading these verses, it's important to note that slavery in first century Roman Empire was not anything like the wretched experience of slavery in the early years of the United States of America. Unlike American slavery, the slavery of biblical times was not restricted by race. It often included individuals with high levels of education and skill, was seldom lifelong with the average, with the average lifespan of slavery for an individual being about 10 years. So there were some people who were less than that and some people who were more. Yes, there were some forms of slavery that were unjust in the day, but many others were just voluntary forms of indentured servanthood, right? So let's say that I owed David money and I couldn't pay it 
off, I would say, hey, I will be your slave. I will work for you for three years to work off my debt. And then when I'm done, David would freely release me out of my slavery back into everyday life, right? And so that's what we see here with people who live normal lives. They were paid fair wages. They were doctors, professors, administrators, and civil servants. In fact, again, in Roman times, slavery was maybe one half to one third of everyone uh, during the Christian period, especially during the times here in the New Testament. And the New Testament does never attack slavery as an institution, again, because it was just so different. But it does reorder the relationship between slaves and masters. You can look on the screen. Here are some verses you can go look up on your own. But in this number one, he made, in the New Testament, they make slaves and masters equal, right? Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. Paul commands masters to treat slaves Fairly, Ephesians 6, 9, Colossians 4, 1, Philemon verses 16 and 17. He then commands slaves to be obedient and render good service as slaves to their masters, whether Christian or pagan. Again, Ephesians chapter 6, 5 and 8, Colossians 3, 22 through 25. Now, while the parallel between slavery and a modern employee to boss may not be a perfect analogy, it is much closer relationship than you would have with our understanding of slavery today and the Roman idea of slavery. Primarily, it's people who are in the workforce every day and have a boss that they are supposed to be working under. So when Paul comes and speaks, he's looking at them saying, all right, how you work for a person is going to be an expression of the gospel. And so in this, there's five things I wrote down that kind of go with the things that Paul was talking about here. Humble obedience to the boss, right? These aren't on the screen. Just humble obedience to the boss. You are to work to honor and please them. He says, don't talk back to your boss and don't talk behind your boss's back. Don't steal from them. Have integrity when they aren't looking. And five, act in a way that you know that they can trust you. Don't just act right in front of them so they trust you. Act right in front of them and without them so that you know, actually, that they can fully trust you without talking behind your back, stealing from you, or stabbing them in the back, right? Again, it's this boss and employee relationship. Heard a story so long ago. I think I was in single digits when I heard this story age-wise. It was from a pastor, and it stuck with me to this, to this day. He talked about a boss, and I'm going to share it with you. A boss and employee, they're in a room together. Someone knocks on the door. The boss does not want to talk to. He looks at the guy in the room and says, hey, tell them I'm not here. And he goes, sorry, I won't do that. And he got angry. He's like, why not? He said, listen. If I won't lie for you, then you can trust that I won't lie to you. Right? Integrity matters. Work ethic matters. How you speak about your boss, how you speak about your coworkers matters. How you handle the company's finances matters. Everything you do, do as if you were doing it in the name of Jesus for others to see. That's the heart of Paul's message saying your gospel in action culturally relevant in the moment is imperative so you're not building a wall that's keeping the gospel message from being proclaimed to a people. The purpose behind all of these actions is very simple. Verse 10, we show character integrity so that in every way we will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. So that people, like, and you can put it, we've talked, we said this probably a hundred times. You've heard other preachers say, because it's just so true. Jesus attracted everyone to him. The church doesn't. Who gets it right? Who gets it right? We want to be attractive by our words and by our actions. The message of Paul here is given to the Cretan church. It's now given to all of us. 
so we will know and own our Christian responsibility and how we act towards others. This is super important. In our world of extreme, extreme individualism, you have to recognize we don't live disconnected lives in a vacuum. We don't get to do whatever we want to do, whenever we want to do it, however we want to do it. That's not a kingdom principle. That's an American Western value that's not in the Bible. We are to die to self so that others can live. What we say, and more importantly, what we do affects and hurts other people, either positively or negatively affects the message of Jesus. Here are my takeaways. Aaron, you can come forward. Number one, you can put on the screen, God is committed to not yet Christians. We see that in the life of Paul speaking to Titus, right? That's the foundation of everything he's speaking. God is committed to not yet Christians. Are we? Are you? Number two, God wants us to die to our freedoms if they keep people from Jesus. Some of you really need to process and pray through them because that is so seemingly against how we understand the world. But God wants us to die to our freedoms. I could have walked in with my sin. I'm going to keep my shoes on. They're my shoes. I paid for them. I can put my feet wherever I want to put them. I'm an American by God. God wants us to die to our freedoms. Three, live knowing people that are watching what you do. Not in some creepy way, right? You know what I mean? But that'd be kind of awkward. Like, they're always watching me. Uh, Right? No, I mean, like, you know that people around you and everything that you were doing, they're watching. Number four, be responsible with your actions. This is super simple. Be responsible with your actions. Number five, rely on God's grace. It's like verse 11. I'll get there next week. I'll just kind of give you a little advance notice. Verse 11 says, for the grace of God has appeared. I love that. For the grace of God has appeared. Because let me tell you something. People who left the room, I'm sorry they're going to hear this part. This is important. Everything that Paul calls them to, they're unable to do in their own strength. In fact, if you remember, he tells every single one of those people to be self-controlled. Do you know what self-control is? A fruit of the Holy Spirit grace that's given. Even death to self is impossible in our own strength. Death to these pieces is difficult apart from God's grace. God, I can't. Only you can help. Of course I will help. As I just read from Acts 2, I'm always at your right hand, and I'm keeping you from being ashamed. I am there to empower you. So all of the responsibilities and actions that Paul is calling them to, for grace, God has appeared. So this morning... I recognize some of this is really difficult. Death to self is always difficult. I recognize for some of you as women who have been maybe abused by this very dangerous, patriarchal, um, damaging culture maybe in your life, and you hear that from Paul, and it's PTSD for you, I understand. That's why I want you to hear me say, I don't believe that was Paul's heart and Jesus' heart for eternity for the church. It's not. I don't believe that. That's why we're all sitting here today. It's why my wife gets up on stage and prays over our people, right? I believe that women have their place. But the reality in this day was if they had exercised the freedoms that I believe the gospel calls us to enjoy in time, at the outset, it would have been dangerous. And he's saying, I'm just asking, would you die to self in this moment? As hard as that is. But the message of death to self is for all of us. We're all to agape other people. Let me pray. Father, I thank you um, that we get to be the ones through whom your gospel is preached, proclaimed, 